reading is from Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints in Christ at Colossae, who are faithful brothers and sisters, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, for we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. You have already heard about this hope in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. It is bearing fruit and growing all over the world, just as it has among you since the day you heard it and came to truly appreciate God's grace. You learned this from Epaphras, our dearly loved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has told us about your love in the Spirit. The word of the Lord. Good morning. You know, that song that Earl and the team just led us in would not be very popular in a lot of places around the world. Jesus is our only salvation. Now, that seems intolerant, doesn't it? I mean, how can Jesus be the only way? Surely there are so many different ways that God would provide. Now, I'm reminded of a story I heard about J.P. Moreland when he was teaching a philosophy class. And he was teaching about morality. And one of the students in the class was affirming that, okay, well, there's morality, but it's subjective. It's each, up to each person to decide what's moral and what's not. Just like truth. I mean, I mean, who are you, who is anybody, to tell us what is true and what isn't true? And Dr. Moreland's response to this was to walk down to that student's desk and pick up his iPod, put it in his pocket, and walk back up front. And the student was upset. What, what are you doing? That's mine. Dr. Moreland, not anymore. I, I saw it, and I wanted it, and I took it. Well, you can't do that. Why not? Because it's not yours. It is now. <laughs> he was making this point that, you know, morality is subjective until it applies to you. you know? And this, this idea of truth being subjective, that there are things that are true simply because they're useful, not because they're actually true. Uh, Friedrich Nietzsche once is famous for saying that what goes against Christianity for me is not its truth, but my taste. It's my preference. I, I want you, the next time that you are standing in front of a judge for a traffic ticket, not that that'll ever happen to any of us here, the next time you're standing before that judge, I want you to try, Your Honor, what goes against this traffic ticket is not the truth, but my taste. I I'm not going to pay the fine because I don't believe it's real. And see how far that's going to get you. You know, we do live in a world where truth is being degraded. Uh, there's the idea that an idea can't be true in and of itself. It can only be good if it works for now. Something is true if the consumer decides, hey, I like this. If, if this is what is going to be good for me, or if this will do things better for me, then I'll accept it as an operational truth. 
You know, this leads me to the question, how in the world can we represent Christ in a place where truth is becoming increasingly subjective and the very nature of truth is being challenged? How, how can we faithfully represent Christ? Well, this morning we're starting a new sermon series. We're going to be jumping into this little letter of Colossians and spending a number of weeks there. And we're going to see the Apostle Paul tackling this question and some others. So just a little bit about Colossians. This letter was written by Paul to the people of Colossae, and this was a little city that was starting to fail. Uh, there was a time when Colossae was a booming city, and all the trade and traffic would go through it. But for those of you who have seen the movie Cars, have you seen that? The, the Disney Pixar movie Cars is a commentary about Colossae. Uh, Colossae was a boom city as long as Route 66 was running through it. But then Laodicea got an interstate, and Laodicea is 11 miles away from Colossae. And now all trade and traffic is going through Laodicea, and Colossae is starting to shrink and dwindle. I read one commentator saying that Colossae was the most insignificant city that New Testament manuscripts could ever be sent. Yet it was significant enough that the Apostle Paul took time out of his busy prison schedule to write them a letter because he heard about a concern. So these folks in Colossae, they are facing a false teacher. We don't know exactly what this false teacher is teaching, but we know that it's going into one of three or four areas. One area is what role does Jesus have in worship? Is he the main guy? Or are there angelic beings that are better than Jesus? And Jesus is just one of these heavenly beings, but there are other beings better, and we need to be worshiping angels. And so angel worship was being encouraged. Another thing that's being encouraged is legalism. Legalism to the Jewish feasts. If we're not observing the feasts exactly right in this special way, you are not going to be recipients of the gospel. The gospel is only for those people who are living in this way, and doing these things, and doing them right. Another potential false teaching that Paul was facing as he's writing this letter is the idea of secret knowledge. That 95% of us in this room are going to hear this message and, and be encouraged by it, uh, but there's 5% of you, and you know who you are, who are going to hear the secret message in the teaching, and that is going to take you to a higher spiritual plane, a better place, that there's a secret special knowledge that you can apprehend if only you're good enough. This is what's floating around Colossae. Paul hears about this and is rightly very concerned. These three things are basically saying the same thing. Jesus Christ is not enough. There needs to be more. It's Jesus and adherence to this law of how you observe the feasts. It's Jesus and this secret knowledge that you need to find. It's, it's Jesus and the worship of these angels who might be bigger and better than who Jesus is. So over the next several weeks, we're going to see how Paul teaches the truth in a way that's going to counteract all of these lies. And this morning, we're picking up and starting with the introductory verses and we're going to see, as we're looking at this message, that hope, hope is the key. Hope forms the basis for the faith and the love that's seen in the life of believers. So I'm going to read again these opening couple of verses. Paul, 
an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. All right, so Paul is setting himself up here. He is an apostle. By the will of God, he is a messenger. It's important that he sets this out there because there are false teachers there in Colossae. You know how many times Paul has been to Colossae? Zero. He's never been. He planted the church in Ephesus, and Colossae is down the way, but he's never been there. It was a church that was planted by two other men, likely. So he writes, By the will of God and Timothy, our brother, who is there with Paul as he's writing this letter, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. I just want to keep pausing here. To the saints. I think it's significant when we read the letters in the New Testament to hear what the authors call Christians. They don't call us Christians. The other people call us Christians. Oh, those are those, those little Christs. Those are those little Christ followers. He doesn't call us disciples. Have you ever noticed when you're reading the Bible that disciple is used over and over again in the Gospels? Then in the book of Acts, we hear some talk at the very beginning of the book about disciples, and then the word disciple disappears completely from the text. You don't find disciple in the letters. You don't find disciple in the second part of the book of Acts. It's just simply gone. Instead, we're called saints. Have you ever reflected on what that means? This may as well say, to the saints and faithful family in Christ at Trinity Fellowship Church. Those of us who are in Christ are saints. We are, we are set apart. We are made holy by the work of Jesus Christ. Not anything that we do, not anything we add to the equation, but because of everything that Jesus did on our behalf. The Holy Spirit has brought us into the family, and now we are saints. And not only that, and faithful brothers. In this context, the faithful doesn't mean obedient or loyal. It means full of faith. These are the ones to whom this letter is being written. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. He's putting that curious word, Lord, in front of Jesus Christ because he needs to be making the point throughout this letter. It's Jesus. Only Jesus. Jesus alone. Jesus is sufficient. Jesus is it. There's nothing you can add to the equation. He is the Lord. We always thank God when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints. This is an encouragement. Paul is, I've heard about your faith. I've heard about the way that you are loving one another, and it's a beautiful thing. This love that you have for all the saints, why do you have it? Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. I'm going to pause. And one of the reasons I keep pausing is Paul, from verse 3 to verse, I believe, 18, is giving us one sentence with no stop. Paul is excited at this point, and he is just writing, or he is speaking without any punctuation. He's not telling Siri where to put periods and commas. He's just going for it. So I'm going to pause to to get a hold of some of these beautiful things that he is bringing out in this letter. So he talks about hope. I mentioned in the introduction that, that hope is the basis of faith and love mentioned in this letter. Uh, hope is the, the key to the gospel message. Hope is given before these false teachers ever showed up. 
they had hope. And the thing about hope is we think of it as a fickle thing. I, I hope the IRS doesn't look too closely at my tax return. I, I, I hope the Cubs are going to make it to the top of the NLD Central again. 2016 was not just a fluke. I, I hope that the numbers I picked are going to be the Powerball. That's not the hope that the Apostle Paul is talking about here. When he's talking about hope, he's talking about a present reality that will become even more in the future. He's talking about a confident expectation. This hope is grounded in the work that Jesus Christ has done. Before, in the word of the truth, the gospel. And what is the gospel? In a nutshell, the gospel is the reality that there is nothing that any of us could ever do to make ourselves stand right before God. Absolutely nothing. No sacrifice, no act, no words, no prayers, no action we would ever do would save us. So God knew this, and he loves us, so he made a way by sending his son, his son who is fully man and fully God, to walk on this earth and to live a sinless life that none of us could live. And he lived this life, and he died a death to atone for our sins. He who had no sin took on all of our sin and took on that penalty, and he died on our behalf so we would not have to face eternal death. Instead, he who died was resurrected, death was defeated, and our hope is in the resurrected Jesus Christ that one day we too will be made like him. This is the gospel. This is the content of hope. It's not a, well, I, I hope things will get better. I, I hope if I pray that God will take this pain away. I hope that if I do this, maybe things will be better. That's not the hope we're talking about. We're talking about a hope that is grounded in the work of Jesus Christ on that cross and his resurrection. That's hope. And it is a certain hope. These false teachers are robbing the Christian message of the hope of the future. They're making it dependent upon us. And any gospel that's dependent upon me, I got to tell you, it's not going to go far. I'm not going to be able to carry that. I am so thankful that God knows that and has provided a way through his son. This is the hope. And so I said that hope fuels our love and our faith. So let's keep reading. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. Okay, now this doesn't mean that at this point, around 60 to 62 A.D., it doesn't mean that the gospel has now gone to the entire world. That's not what's being said here. But Paul is saying the gospel, where it has gone, in the whole world, not just in Colossae, but everywhere the gospel touches, regardless of race, regardless of nationality, regardless of gender, regardless of anything, the gospel, where it goes, bears fruit and increases. This is the nature of the gospel as it also does among you since the day you first heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Note the emphasis on truth. This gospel is true. This faith in Jesus, it, it is an exclusive truth. And just as I mentioned, it's scandalous for us to say Jesus is the only way. Well, well what about the claims of Islam? What about the claims of Buddhism? 
What about Hinduism? They all have ways. What makes us think that our way is the way and their way isn't? Couldn't it be all? Well, just as it's scandalous for us to say that today, it was in the first century. When Paul was writing this in 60 to 62 AD, you were expected to worship many gods. You have your family gods, and then there's the great pantheon of gods. And then if you're visiting someone else's house and they have their family god, which isn't your family god, to honor them, you're going to worship and honor their family god while you're on their territory. So for Christians to say, no, there is no other god but our god who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. For us to say there is no other way but Jesus Christ, they called that, get this, atheism. Christians were atheists because we dared believe in only one God. And you know what that was? It was a crime. Because in order to be a faithful citizen of the empire, you needed to acknowledge that the emperor himself had been deified and was worthy of being worshipped. And Christians are, no, I'm not going to make any offerings. I'm not going to offer any worship to any of these gods. This charge is being laid on them is very similar to the charge that is laid on faithful Christians today. Well, it's intolerant to say that Christianity is the only way. Well, is it intolerant to say that birds can fly because they have wings? If something is true, it's true. It's not intolerant. It's simply true. Just because some Christians hold the view intolerantly doesn't make the view intolerant itself, right? Jesus is the only way. And this faith that Paul is talking about It's not something that's merely possessed. Oh, I have faith in Jesus Christ. No, this faith, the way that Paul is cashing it out, it's not something we possess. It is something that is living and active and drives us to be and to do things differently. That's the type of faith. And this faith is in the truth. Uh, One commentator, Wolfgang Pannenberg, says that the more widespread the ignorance of Christianity the greater the prejudice against Christianity. In other words, another way to say it, the more misunderstood Christianity is, the easier it is to be prejudiced against it and to dismiss it. So let's turn that backwards. The more rightly we think about the content of our faith, the more beautiful our faith will become in presentation to others. The more accurately we believe in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and understand the message of the gospel, the more faithfully we will be able to love one another. Prejudice will melt away in the sight of the beauty of the gospel. We need to know what is true before we recognize what is false. And that's one of the things I love about this letter to the Colossians. Paul doesn't say, all right, so the false teacher is telling you this about the angels. Let me tear that down in five different ways. And then the false teacher tells you about the secret knowledge. Let me tear that. He doesn't do that. The way that he counters these falsehoods is by showing us what is true. This little letter to the Colossians contains one of the richest doctrines of Jesus Christ that we find anywhere in Scripture. Because Paul wants the people to understand, to know, to believe, and to have faith in Jesus Christ. He is sufficient. He alone is sufficient. Faith is not something that's just supposed to be thought about and discussed, but it's something that's supposed to be lived. Faith acts on what it believes, which 
raises some uncomfortable questions that I have to ask myself. Am I living in such a way that reflects the faith that I possess, the faith that I have and that I hold? Is my life reflecting that consistently? That's the question I think Paul is getting at in these opening verses. He goes on to say, I'm going to back up a little bit back into verse 6. And so it does also among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. Epaphras, likely one of these church planters, the one who is an authority in the church in Colossae and the one who is bringing word back to Paul about what's going on in the church of Colossae, he is one who knows the truth, who is living the truth, and is seeing how the truth is being sabotaged in his own community and seeing the nature of faith. Now, faith is a hard thing to define. I found a story that might help us get a good picture of it. Uh, there was this uh, Maasai elder who was working with Bible translators in his community, and they translated the word faith as to agree to. They're trying to find a word in the Maasai language that captures the idea of faith. And this Maasai elder said, no, that's not it. What you're describing to me about what faith is is not captured by that little word that you could translate as to agree to. It's so much more than that. The way that you're translating it, and this is now the story, if I can find it, faith is, yes, faith is something agreed to is similar to a hunter shooting an animal with his gun from a great distance. Only his eyes and his finger took place in the act. It doesn't involve enough. Instead, the elder said, we should find another word. He said, for a man really to believe is like a lion going after its prey. His nose and eyes and ears pick up the prey. His legs give him the speed to catch it. All the power of his body is involved in the terrible death leap and single blow to the neck with the front paw, the blow that actually kills. And as the animal goes down, the lion envelops it in his arms. The Africans refer to the front legs of the animal as the arms. It pulls it to himself and makes it a part of himself. This is the way the lion kills. This is the way that man believes. Every aspect of our being enveloping, embracing, and making it a part of ourself. This is what faith is. I think that's a beautiful, although graphic, picture of the visceral, beautiful reality of faith beyond intellectual assent to something that has become a part of us and needs to work out. And how does it work out? Well, we've talked about hope, and we've talked about faith. That leaves one more word, and it is love. Love. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. The people in Colossae, Paul says, bear the marks of the true gospel. Their life is bearing fruit, and that fruit has its origin in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit enables us to love. It's not about emotions. Love is not, I love pizza. Love is far more than that in the New Testament. It is a conscious choice, and it is something that is acted upon, and specifically, actions for the other. A loving marriage is not one where 
okay, sweetheart, I'll do this for you if you do this for me. That's a good business negotiation. That's not a good marriage. A good marriage is, I will do this for you, and it's going to cost me something, but I'm going to do it for you and expect nothing in return because I love you and I want to sacrifice myself in my love for you. And then the spouse turns and says, what a funny coincidence. I want to do this for you. This thing that costs me and I want nothing in return, I want to give of myself to you. This marriage that's not 50-50 but 100-100 is a healthy marriage. This is what love is, the actions for the other. I'm going to do this not because I get something out of it. I'm going to do it because it blesses you. I'm going to do it not because it makes my life better. I'm going to do it because it's something that God has laid on my heart that I can do that will make your life better. I want to use my gifts and my talents and my skills that you would know the love of Christ through me. I want to love you as Jesus would love you. I want to care for you and serve you as Jesus would serve you. Faith manifests itself in love that is expressed and given to us by the Holy Spirit. The best argument for the Christian faith is not doubling down on truth claims. Now, don't get me wrong. I think we should know the truth. But the best argument for the Christian faith is not doubling down on those, but rather for us to live out our faith in accordance with the truth that we know. What does that look like? Well, we don't search for the truth. We start out from it. How do you view TFC? Is TFC, is this church merely a community group or, or a place that we go together, we gather together because we share a common interest? Or is it a family that submits to the authority of Christ because he is our Lord and Savior? Is it a family of brothers and sisters in Christ to whom we have an obligation to love, to serve, to rebuke, and encourage? What is the church? Do I go to a church because of what I get out of it? Or do I go to a church because I want to worship my God and serve my community? Earl, you'll appreciate this. I've heard the story several times of, of a pastor who's standing at the back and shaking hands as people are going. And, oh, nice sermon, pastor, nice sermon. And one guy goes by and says, thanks for the sermon, pastor, but I've got to tell you, I, I didn't like the music that much. And the pastor's response was, that's okay, it, it wasn't for you. We're here to worship our God, not get something out of it. And in our consumeristic society, that's how we tend to view church. Well, do these programs meet my needs? Do I like the preacher? Do I enjoy the music? We gather together because God has called us to, to worship him and to serve one another. It has nothing to do with you and everything to do with the men and women seated around you. This is faith hope, and love in action. So, how can we at Trinity Fellowship Church represent Christ in a world that challenges the very nature of Christ and the very nature of truth? The answer? Live out your hope with an active faith and a sacrificial, demonstrable love. In the coming weeks, you're going to be given opportunities to let us know of skills and talents that you have that you would be willing to use as a blessing to other members of the body. Imagine a church 
Imagine a world. (laughs) Imagine a church where we are actively lifting each other up in prayer. Imagine a church where we are actively serving one another with our gifts and demonstrating to the watching world what it means to be saved by the author of love himself, Jesus Christ. So this week, I want you to prayerfully consider how you might be able to use your gifts and your talents and your time for someone else. What would that look like? What sacrifice of time and effort are you willing to make for your brothers and sisters in Christ, these who are our fellow saints and faithful brothers and sisters in the family of Christ? Would you pray for me? Pray with me and for me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the beautiful truth of the gospel. That while we were still sinners, you provided a way for us to know you. That through the sacrifice of your Son, you have given us not just eternal life, but a beautiful community of brothers and sisters. That you have called us to worship alongside and to edify and encourage and to care for. I pray for this community of faith. May we be seen by the watching world around us as a place that genuinely cares for one another, serves one another, and more than that, out of an abundance of your love, reaches out to serve not just those within this body, but those within our community. May this church be a lighthouse in troubled times, a place where people see the beauty of your Son lived out in our lives and through our ministries. We cannot do this without the strengthening and guidance of the indwelling Spirit. So we pray this by His power, in the name of the Son, and for your glory. Amen.